Well, thank you, Pastor Jeremy, for uh, preaching last week. Um, we, we swapped weeks because I was getting over my cold as well uh, last week, and so it was great that Jeremy was prepared. Um, <clears throat> but we're going to complete uh, Psalm 109, which we began a few weeks ago. It's an imprecatory, imprecatory psalm, which means um, there are certain psalms, about 14 of them, where David primarily is calling down curses upon his enemies. And it seems like, oh, it seems kind of foreign to us. Like, like this doesn't seem right in God's inspired word, why he would do so. But we read in Psalm 109, we'll, we'll be completing our thoughts on why God of the Old Testament seems so violent compared to God in the New Testament. Psalm 109, may his or my enemies, uh, may David is speaking of his enemies, may his enemies' children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. Again, if God is so loving and inspiring, why would he allow these words to be conveyed in his inspired word for us? Well, a few weeks ago, we looked at a few reasons, and by way of review, this imprecatory psalm and the others give us permission to be real with God, you know? There's, a, there's another passage that says, come let us reason together, speaking of us and God, and that, that word is contend, let us contend with God. God gives us permission to cry out to him. Secondly, David entrusted all vengeance to God. He, even though his words were filled with vengeance, in a sense, he, he didn't take it upon himself to enact vengeance and retaliation. Rather, he gave it to God. He put others on God's hook. And then thirdly, God gives us a complete picture of who Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry, God reveals himself through Jesus. He gives us a complete picture of who he is through Jesus. Jesus is the final revelation. He, he's the final word, the complete revelation of God. And we know that Jesus was filled with love for people, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave us his son. He sent his son to represent his heart to us. 1 John 4, this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice so Jesus equals God, but also God equals Jesus. So when we see Jesus, we see God. When we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. And so that's the complete revelation. But why does God seem so angry at times, in the Old Testament especially? Let's continue to unpack this conversation. And I would suggest that the way we view God and his wrath will inform how we view others who are yet saved, who are our enemies, if you will. Um, it'll inform how we view them and how we even relate to them and treat them. Even 
um, if not um, obviously, it will be something that will take on. Because I know people who are raised in really strict religious homes, I mean really hyper-strict and legalistic homes where God was angry and he was always correcting and always disciplining and you better be careful or God's going to, you know, be careful, little eyes what you see. There's a father up, you know how that song goes. He's looking down at love and anger, really. And, and I talked to them today, and many of them say, I was raised in a home like that. I don't want anything to do with a God like that. Or they have a really skewed view of what God is like, you know, and they support their picture biblically. They point to stories, especially in the Old Testament, of disobedient Israelites who were swallowed up in the desert or in the wilderness because of God's judgment. They point to Israelites who were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience. They point to how the Israelites were taken captive because of their obstinance and their idolatry and their unrepentant hearts, and they're forced to live in foreign lands under foreign regimes as slaves, or a God who commands his faithful community to take the disobedient children or people into the outskirts of town and stone them to death because of their rebellion. Or a God who strikes down in the New Testament Ananias and Sapphira because they blatantly lied to the Holy Spirit into the church. Or a God who will eventually cast unbelievers into this eternal place of torment. I don't want to worship a God like that, people say. How do, how do these provide a picture of your God that you speak of when you speak of God's love? How do these... Picture a God who's patient and kind and loving and merciful and forgiving. Well, first we need to remember that God never changes. He is the same God in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament, who, we, who he will be at his second coming, who he will be for eternity. He never changes. This loving and patient God we read about in Jesus is the same God that we worship from the Old Testament. And we read ton. In fact, there are four times more passages on God's mercy in the Old Testament than there are in the New Testament. For example, Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Or Hosea, God gives a picture of who he is through the prophet Hosea. He said, this is what you are to convey. Um, You have a wife, Gomer, Hosea, and she's unfaithful. She's living as a prostitute and adulteress, and I want you to go rescue her and bring her back. He said, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and, and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods time and time again and love the sacred raisin cakes. This is the heart of our God who continues to come and offer his mercy and grace and rescue us time and time again when we're rebellious. Or Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heaven are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion 
on those who fear him. So why do we see these discrepancies in the stories in the Old and New Testament, both on God's extreme anger and wrath as opposed to his patience and his grace and mercy? I love Jim Dennison's observations about God's judgment when he says God's judgment only comes after he patiently warns the people through the prophets and through the priests and through the judges and through the kings. For example, Abraham was promised the land of Canaan, saying this is your, your land for you and your descendants after you, but it's not going to come yet. Genesis 15. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites have not reached its full. That, that land is yours, but not for four generations. How many years would four generations be? It could be hundreds of years. It could be up to 400 years before this land will be claimed by you. This is yours, but not yet, because the sins of these Canaanite peoples have not reached their capacity. God is gracious. He's patient, wanting people to repent. Noah, he was promised judgment because of a rebellious people in the world. Noah was a builder of the ark, but we're told in Hebrews he was also a preacher of righteousness. As he was building the ark for decades, he was being ridiculed by the people of the cities, thinking, what is this flood you speak of? You are a crazy lunatic. He continues to build the ark, yet he preaches righteousness and repentance because God is a God who extends mercy and wants people to repent. Israel and Judah were warned by the prophets time and time again, but they would eventually be overtaken by enemy foreign powers because they refused to repent and turn from idolatry. Here's the heart of God, though. The prophet Jonah, he was commanded to go preach a message of repentance to the Ninevites, thinking that God's going to have his way and finally vengeance will be great, awesome. But then God, but then these people repent, much to the surprise of Jonah. The Ninevites repent and God relents and Jonah gets ticked at God for relenting and being merciful. We're warned throughout the New Testament that final judgment will be coming. But for those who refuse to uh, turn to God, they will experience judgment, but not yet. Ezekiel 33, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, God says. Why will you die, people of Israel? Turn. John 3, 17, Jesus did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Second Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He will return, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son, shedding light on God's heart, as seen in the prodigal father, the father longed for his son to return and repent, turn from his wicked ways. And when he did, the father wrapped his arms around him and threw a party for his rebellious son who had now repented. Yes, God's full wrath will come. We read about that clearly in Scripture. Romans chapter 2, 
He says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourselves for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed and God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be what? Wrath and anger. But that's just not something in the future. We see God's wrath in the present. We are given a foretaste of God's wrath in John chapter 3, again, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. They're living under condemnation. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them presently for those who are walking um, in rejection and unrepentance. But it will eventually culminate in Jesus' second coming and his wrath being poured out. But what is God's wrath? And how is it experienced in the disobedient? I'd like to, I'd like to uh, offer three suggestions here from Scripture. Um, this is what I think God's wrath looks like. Now, others would disagree with me, other pastors would, and they would cite Scripture too, but this is how I see the heart of God based on hopefully what I will um, present to you in Scripture today. First, I think God's wrath comes across as God's conviction in our hearts. Peter Kreft, he says, what is the wrath of God? Is it real or not? It is real, but it is not part of God himself. God is not half love and half wrath, or 99% love and 1% wrath. No, God is love. Wrath is how his love appears to us when we sin or rebel or run away from him. The very light that is meant to help us appears to us as our enemy when we seek the darkness. So God is light. God is love. But it appears anything but light and love when we're seeking darkness. John 3.19, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. What happens when we love light or love darkness? Well, Alan Hearn gives this illustration. He takes a lit match and a piece of paper, and he brings the match and paper together, and he says, um, when they come in contact you'll know what will happen. The flame will consume the paper. This requires no red-in-the-face anger toward the paper. It simply is a law governing these two substances. In exactly the same way, when we speak of God's wrath, we're not describing a God red-in-the-face anger such as we might exhibit to others when we're ticked off. No, God in his purity and in his holiness is perfectly at peace. And there's no rage in him, yet bring unholiness and sin into his presence, and his holiness will consume that which is unholy and impure. Sin cannot abide in his presence. There's no compromise between God and sin any more than there can be compromise between flame and paper. 
And, and so what this looks like is two people can come to church this morning and they could come together or separate, be sitting right next to each other, and one person could say, man, the Lord is here. I just feel his presence. I love being in the presence of the Lord, sitting under the authority of his word. Oh, God, speak to me. And the other one is like, I can't wait for this service to be over. Antsy, I can't stand being here. Why did it ever come? They want to get up and shoot out of here as fast as they can. They're hearing the same thing. They're, receiving, they're seeing the same light, but one hates it, and one loves it. Or it's like uh, this guy who went golfing with Billy Graham one day and a group of guys, and, and his friend said after they golfed 18 holes, so what was it like with golfing with Billy Graham? He said, I hated it. It was horrible. I mean, it, he made me feel so uncomfortable and awkward and tense the whole time. I hated it. He said, why? What did he do? What did he say? Uh... Nothing, uh, nothing. He just couldn't stand being in the presence of Billy Graham because he made him feel awkward. Lightness cannot be comfortable, or darkness cannot be comfortable in the light. God's conviction can appear to be as God's wrath to someone who is um, living under that wrath. Secondly, I would contend that God's wrath is God's withdrawal. He withdraws. Punitive withdrawal looks like this. How did God punish sin? Well, God punished sin by withdrawing his presence from Jesus while Jesus hung on the cross. Now, this is debatable. What, what did God do? But many believe that God turned his face on Jesus when, when Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken thee? Whether, whether God was there or if he totally turned his face and withdrew from Jesus totally, I don't know. But what I do know is Jesus felt the distance from God. As Tim Keller put it, his body was being destroyed. Uh, and that word forsaken, why have you forsaken me? It means abandoned as well. Um, so his body was being destroyed in the worst possible way possible known to humankind. But it was like a flea bite compared to what was happening in his soul, Keller says. When he cried out that God has forsaken him, he was experiencing hell itself. If a mild acquaintance denounces you and rejects you, then that will hurt. If a good friend does the same, then the hurt will be far worse. However, if a spouse rejects you, walks away from you, I never want to see you again, then that will be far more devastating still. The longer and deeper and more intimate the relationship, the more torturous is one's separation. Jesus, Son, the Son of God, and God the Father and God the Son were together for eternity. And when they were separated on the cross, that would have been the most devastating, horrific pain. And we see this pattern of God withdrawal, his withdrawal from people, multiple stories in, in God's word. Like when the people of Israel turned to idols, they ultimately experienced severe defeat, like in this picture up here. Not in that picture, the next picture maybe. Um, because God's hand of pr protection, his provision, and his power with, were withdrawn. Like in the heat of the battle. You know, they, they were, Israel was all proud, we're going to take these people, we're much stronger and better. Well, Filled with pride and arrogance, God withdrew his hand of protection from them, and they got severely spanked. God's withdrawal is his, his wrath against disobedience. And then, logically, the next 
progression would be God giving people over. If he withdraws, he's going to give people over to their sinful ways. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness. Then Paul describes, continuing on in Romans chapter 1, what this wrath looks like. That's being dispensed or revealed against ungodliness. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, the sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies to one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over. Paul is speaking of God's wrath being revealed from heaven against godlessness and wickedness by giving them over. He withdraws, and then he gives them over their sinful ways. This is what C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, the lost will forever face their horrible freedom that they have demanded. The lost will forever face their horrible freedom that they've demanded. What was he saying? He was saying, That the lost, those who reject God and his word and his ways, they want nothing to do with God. They don't want to follow him. They don't want to serve him. They don't want to obey him. They don't want him as a leader in their lives because they want their freedom from God. And and they continue to demand their own freedom. And eventually God says, okay, I will give you what you desire. I will give you your freedom. He pulls his hand back and he gives them exactly what they've wanted all their lives. And in doing so... He restrains his grace. It's removed. And there's no longer any restraining grace, restraining them from totally being controlled by their sinful nature. And then people sin more and more in their freedom, so to speak, and things go from bad to worse in their personal lives, and then it extends to their family, and then it expands to the culture, and then it expands to the world. God says, I'm giving you over to what you desire. So in other words, a form of God's wrath is to let sinful people be more and more controlled by their sin, which therefore increases corruption in our world. Now God's wrath upon Jesus' body was his wrath against sin. Not against Jesus, not even against the people he created, but against sin and death and, and, and uh, Satan. That's who Jesus defeated on the cross. So God's wrath came against the sin. What did he do? God withdrew from this. And he allowed these evil agents to have their way with Jesus on the cross and punish him in mind, body, and soul. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And God withdrew his presence because of his love for us. Romans 8.1, those who are in Christ now, here's the good news. For those who know Jesus, there's no wrath. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then there's Romans 5.9, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, both 5.9s I remember. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? First Thessalonians, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation from that wrath through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We're covered with God's righteousness, not his wrath. But God's judgment and wrath are certainly coming. But what will it look like upon Christ's return? You know, we, we all grew up watching movies of, you know, the end times and tribulation and Armageddon and the blood wars going on. Ah, God's people are winning and, and God's and Jesus is coming with his sword. Well, we read in Revelation 19 that the sword that Jesus wields is coming out of his mouth. It's his word. It's a sharp sword which will strike down the nations. His word, and with one word, Jesus created the universe. Just a spoken word, and we have what we have here. And in the same way, his word will speak wrath, condemnation, or it will speak salvation. For those, those who will be rejoicing, who believe the truth, but they will suffer wrath and condemnation because they've refused to believe that same truth coming forth from Jesus. And then the withdrawal of God's presence once and for all and forever will be a place called hell. There's, again, there's a lot of opinions as to what hell's gonna be like. No one really knows. We haven't been there. We've heard stories. We've read books by people who've experienced it and they've come back to express it. And so we kind of get an idea, but no one has ever been there this side of heaven or hell. But this is what I believe hell is gonna be based on God's word. Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Again, depart from me, separation, a withdrawal. I believe hell is gonna be an absolute withdrawal of God's presence. There will be no love. It'll be absence of God's goodness, of hope, of anything beautiful, of any blessings whatsoever. If there's fellowship, you know, I'm going to go party with my friends in hell. Man, that'd be awesome. We're going to have a blast. There will be no fellowship in hell. There'll be no partying going on. There'll be no relationships in hell. Solitary confinement. It's the withdrawal of anything you've ever known that's good on earth. And by the way, if you think it's painful on earth, withdraw all of God from this earth will have hell. God's, God's glory is everywhere that you look. The heavens declare his glory in his nature even, in his people. We see reflections of God everywhere. If we continually place ourselves on our thrones of our self-directed lives and self-serving lives, rather than placing God on the throne of our lives, thereby serving him as our Lord, then he will eventually grant us what we want an eternity absent of his presence. C.S. Lewis put it this way, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, they choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. God sends nobody to hell. We choose it. We deserve it. It's not God's intention. Well, let me conclude by returning to my earlier thought. I contended that how we view God and his wrath will determine how we view and relate to others. Well, we have to think of Jesus' life. How did he view and relate to others? Well, we're told over and over again that Jesus came to seek 
and save those who are lost. Even up to the very end when he was hanging on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He loved them to the very end. Even his enemies. And we get a picture of what God is like through Jesus as he told the prodigal son story. Again, the prodigal father was patiently waiting and praying and hoping for his rebellious son to return and repent so that he could wrap his arms around him and throw a party for him and celebrate. That's the heart of the God that I serve. It's the heart that missionaries have when they go overseas. They say, Lord, break my heart for what breaks your heart. That's a picture of God's heart. Deal Moody saw a great opportunity to preach in the 1893 World's uh, Fair in Chicago. And he utilized local churches and he rented theaters and this big tent. And he said, I'm going to just share the gospel with people. This one is young evangelist. But his friends encouraged him to attack those from the parliament of religions. Attack those who are the, the dispensers of counterfeit truths who are leading people astray. But Moody said, no, no, I'm going to preach the good news. And so he did. He focused on Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And by the end of the Chicago World's Fair of 1893, thousands had given their lives to Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Because Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. He didn't come to attack those who he considered his enemies. That's what I believe God's wrath looks like. Again, I believe God's wrath is a conviction of our spirit and it's experience that we hate the light. We're convicted. We feel uncomfortable. That's God's wrath upon us. Secondly, I believe God's wrath is God's withdrawal. And then finally turning us over to our sinful ways, giving us what we desire ultimately, ultimately ending an eternal separation. That's God's wrath. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, now that we are a church filled with your grace and your truth, as evidenced even by this Tuesday when we will be in our parking lot and throughout our building, extending our love to our community, many of whom will be unchurched during trunk or treat, Lord, because we are here to seek and save those who are lost. We want to love those who are currently your enemies. We want, we want them to... To, to see them come to you, Lord. And I pray, God, that you bless this endeavor on Tuesday and the many other ministries that seek to reach those who are lost and broken. Continue to use this church, Lord, to be a light in the darkness, I pray, and that we may be dispensers of your grace without sacrificing your truth, I pray. And finally, Lord, I want to thank you that we who know you are no longer under your wrath or condemnation, we walk in freedom and a full acceptance because of Jesus living in our lives. We thank you for this gift that's freely given and received. Amen.